Due to the graphic nature of this investigation and trial, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of violence and sexual assault that some people may find offensive and may be upsetting for some listeners. We advise extreme caution for listeners under 13. If you or a loved one have been the victim of sexual assault, support and resources are available 24-7 through the National Sexual Assault Hotline at 1-800-656-HOPE or online at rainn.org. A little after 1 a.m. on Thursday, April 20, 1989, construction workers Benicio Moore and Carlos Colon finished the last of their beers at a bar on the west side of Central Park. Instead of taking the bus home, the pair decided to walk east through the park, taking a footpath at 100th Street. Street lamps were few and far between, but a full moon provided satisfactory light. By 1.30 a.m., Moore and Cologne reached a part of the park known as The Lock, a set of man-made waterfalls fed by a small creek. Cologne heard a muffled noise coming from the brush and stopped. When he looked to the side of the path, he saw someone so beaten and bloodied they barely resembled a person. Their limbs jerked with involuntary twitches. Cologne and Moore took off running, looking for help. They came across two policemen and frantically told them what they'd found. When Officer Joseph Walsh reached the scene, he realized it was a woman lying in the brush. Most of her clothes had been stripped off and her hands were tied together in front of her face. She was covered in blood, laying in a puddle of water and cold to the touch. Walsh immediately commanded his partner to radio for an ambulance. While they waited for the paramedics, Walsh tried to comfort the woman. He covered her with a blanket, but her flailing legs kicked it off. One of her eyes was swollen shut, but the other stared directly at him, wide with fear. He tried talking to her before realizing that even though she was awake, there was no recognition. All they could do was get her to a hospital as soon as possible and hope for the best. In the days that followed, the woman would become known throughout New York City as the Central Park Jogger, and the details of her horrific assault were printed in black and white. The public demanded justice for her attack. New York Governor Mario Cuomo said of the crime, This is the ultimate shriek of alarm. This is the ultimate siren, that none of us are safe. How should we determine a person's guilt? Do we defer to the evidence discovered by police or the verdict reached by a jury? And what happens when the evidence and the verdict don't line up? Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson, and this is Not Guilty, a ParCast original. Each week, we look at complicated criminal cases that test the limits of innocent until proven guilty. This week, we'll follow the police investigation of the attack and sexual assault of the Central Park jogger, 28-year-old Trisha Miley, on April 19, 1989. 
we'll see what led police to arrest a group of black and Latino teenage boys, now known as the Central Park Five, for the crime. Next week, we'll see how the evidence collected in the investigation played out in the courtroom in two different criminal trials and understand how the juries reached their verdicts. At Parcast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. And if you enjoy today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help us. We also now have merchandise. Head to parcast.com slash merch for more information. By the time the ambulance reached the hospital at 2.30 a.m. on April 20, 1989, 28-year-old Trisha Miley had lost nearly 80% of the blood in her body. She was hypothermic with a pulse so weak that it was hardly detectable. When her full medical assessment was completed, the report noted that she had cuts and bruises on every part of her body, except the soles of her feet. Her skull had been fractured, and the fact that her pupils were unresponsive to light indicated she suffered some form of brain damage. If she regained consciousness, which doctors said was a slim chance, she would likely have deficiencies. In addition to their life-saving efforts, doctors collected what physical evidence they could from Trisha, hoping that DNA might be able to identify her attacker. They used what's known as a rape kit and sent it to the police for processing. After stabilizing her, all doctors could do was wait and see if she recovered while police tried to locate her attacker. Fortunately, investigators had a very strong lead. Trisha wasn't the only person attacked in Central Park that night. The park has its own police division, the 22nd Precinct. Throughout the evening of April 19th, several Central Park officers had responded to complaints about a large group of teenagers causing trouble in different parts of the park. Just after 9 p.m. that night, Officer Raymond Alvarez entered the park on the east side at 106th Street. He was on his way to another precinct to deliver some mail when he ran into a group of about a dozen teenagers, laughing and fooling around. When he turned his spotlight on the group, they fled, running south, deeper into the park. Alvarez continued on his way, heading west. At 9.05 p.m., 30-year-old Michael Vigna was riding his bike on East Drive, heading north. Vigna reported that when the group of teenagers saw him, the boys spread out across the path, blocking his way. Vigna had to quickly swerve to avoid them. When he passed by, one of the boys tried to hit him. Vigna reported, quote, I heard the sound of his fist barely nicking me in the face. He sort of swung out and I jerked to the side. Close to 9.10 p.m., the group collided with another man on East Drive, Antonio Diaz. He was homeless, walking through the park by himself and carrying a bag of food and beer bottles. He was stumbling a bit, already intoxicated. The teenagers converged on Diaz and one of them knocked him to the ground. 
Diaz reported that five of the boys started to kick and hit him as he lay there. One of them stole his bag of food and started eating it. The rest of the teens stood on the sidelines, watching the attack but not joining in nor intervening. The group eventually moved on, continuing south on East Drive, leaving Diaz lying in the grass by the side of the road, bleeding. Around 9.15 p.m., 35-year-old Gerald Malone and his fiancée, Patricia Dean, were pedaling a tandem bike when they saw the troop of teens. As they approached, a few of the boys leapt out into the road, as they had done with Michael Vigna, trying to block the path. The boys crouched down, bending their knees and stretching out their arms. Malone thought they were going to try to pounce on the bike and mug them. Spread out across the road like that, there was nowhere for the bike to go other than straight through the line of teenagers. Malone stated, My first thought was there absolutely was no way I was not going to go down. But I decided I was going to get this guy, the leader, the tallest one, who seemed to have the energy of the group. I was going to make him my mattress. I tried to hit him. I tried to hit him as hard as I could, but he jumped out of the way. He estimated that he and Dean were pedaling at a speed of at least 35 miles per hour when they broke through the line. Dean reported that a few of the boys tried to grab her and pull her off the bike when they passed. After clearing the group, they rode to a police call box in the park to report the incident. Around 9.25 p.m., Officer Alvarez was returning from his errand and encountered Antonio Diaz, still bleeding. Diaz told him about the attack from the teenagers, and Alvarez radioed the Central Park Precinct to summon more officers. At the same time that police were converging on the park, 30-year-old David Lewis was jogging around the reservoir, a 106-acre man-made lake in the park surrounded by a 1.5-mile running path. He saw a group of teenagers up ahead. When they saw Lewis approaching, Several of them crouched down, bending their knees and balancing forward in a football tackler stance. Lewis heard one of the boys ask the group if they were ready. Another hurled a rock in Lewis's direction, but it missed him, striking the chain-link fence that surrounded the reservoir instead. Lewis, trying to mitigate the situation, asked if the boys wanted to race. One of them replied, Yeah, we'll race all right. Lewis took off, quickening his pace. Five more teenagers suddenly jumped out of the woods and onto the running path. Lewis swerved around them, but one of the boys punched him in the arm, hard. Panicking, Lewis ran even faster, too fast for the boys to catch up, and they abandoned their pursuit. Lewis didn't slow down until he'd reached the Central Park Police Station to report what had happened. By 9.30 p.m., 29-year-old Robert Garner, a British expat, encountered the group on the jogging trail. Some of the boys had split off, but he counted at least 15. According to Garner, they surrounded him and forced him off the running path and into the grass. Immediately, one of the boys started punching him in the face and torso. Garner said, I was terrified. I thought I was going to die. 
Garner asked the teens what they wanted. One replied, money, of course, drawing laughter from the others. He explained that he didn't have anything on him other than the keys to his apartment. When one of the teens moved aside, giving him the opportunity to flee, Garner sprinted away to the edge of the park, then immediately walked home. 40-year-old John Laughlin, a schoolteacher and retired Marine, had seen the group of teenagers surround Garner and stopped to help him. When he approached the group, after Garner ran, one of the boys snapped at him. What are you looking at? Are you some kind of vigilante? More of the group taunted Laughlin with the vigilante mantra. Suddenly, one of the teenagers struck him in the back of the head with a metal pipe, sending him to the ground. The rest of the teens converged on him, kicking and hitting him repeatedly. Laughlin was beaten so badly, he would spend the next two days in the hospital. The police officer who later discovered him on the ground in the park described him as being dunked in a bucket of blood. After the attack on Laughlin, the teenagers split up, heading home their separate ways in small clusters. Around 10.30 p.m., police in the park apprehended five teenage boys aged 13 to 15, Raymond Santana, Kevin Richardson, Steve Lopez, Lamont McCall, and Clarence Thomas. They brought them all back to the Central Park precinct to call their parents. While the kids were being processed, waiting for their parents to arrive, Trisha Miley was discovered, brutally attacked, and barely alive. A detective at the hospital called the Central Park Precinct and instructed them to continue holding the five teenagers. Police believed all the attacks that night were related, and these teenage boys were their number one suspects. Coming up, police interrogate the group of teenagers from the park and try to elicit a confession. Now, back to the story. On April 19, 1989, a large group of teenagers attacked and intimidated several bikers and joggers in New York City's Central Park. When police discovered 28-year-old Trisha Miley brutally assaulted and left in the bushes to die, they immediately connected her attack to the other reported incidents. Five of the group of roughly 30 teenagers were already in police custody and their parents summoned to the station. They were initially arrested only in connection to the reported harassment, but now that police knew about Trisha, they believed that she was another victim of the group of marauding teens. 13-year-old Lamont McCall and 14-year-old Clarence Thomas were interviewed in the presence of their parents by officers in the Central Park Precinct. They told officers some names of other boys in the park that night and described what had occurred with the homeless man, the bikers, and joggers. But neither boy knew anything about Trisha's attack. They were issued an appearance date for family court and sent home a little after 6 a.m. Before interviewing the other three boys, officers prepared for a shift change from the night watch to the day squad. By now, the story of the attack was all over the city, broadcast on the news and chewed over by talk radio hosts. 
The district attorney's office had already contacted the upper echelons of the NYPD to get an update on the investigation and their initial leads. The assistant DA assigned to the case, 36-year-old Elizabeth Letterer, was on site in the park by 9 a.m. Everyone in New York City law and order wanted this case solved quickly, with airtight evidence that would ensure justice in court for the jogger. So by 10 a.m., detectives from the Manhattan North Homicide Squad had arrived to lead the interviews instead of the Central Park precinct officers. Even though the case wasn't technically a homicide yet, the Manhattan Homicide Division were the heavy hitters in these types of extreme cases of violence. Central Park Precinct was happy to defer to their expertise. Detective John Hardigan had 20 years in homicide under his belt, with the explicit directive from his superiors to close the case as efficiently as possible. Hardigan aimed to elicit a confession from the teenagers. Juries always responded best to confessions, and Hardigan was proud of his ability to garner rapport with suspects. He was the type of cop they wanted to open up to. Once crack cocaine had flooded New York City five years prior, Hardigan had seen more and more young black and Latino men at the center of violence. The so-called crack wars had put money in their pockets and guns in their hands. Acts of aggression sparked by gang activity became the new norm in the minority neighborhoods of the Bronx, East Harlem, and Bedford-Stuyvesant. The waves of violence subsequently spilled out into the city at large, and Hardigan had experienced the shocking statistics firsthand. In 1989, city inhabitants reported nine rapes, five murders, 255 robberies, and 194 aggravated assaults every day. Two months before this attack, a gang member had ripped a three-year-old boy from his mother's arms to use as a human shield against his pursuers. The boy was shot in the stomach, but thankfully survived. The city felt gripped by the constant underlying possibility of violence. Now it appeared that Trisha Miley was just one more innocent person caught up in the bloodshed. When Detective Hardigan sat with 14-year-old Kevin Richardson, he had him walk through the events of the evening again. He said he was hanging out at the basketball courts in Schomburg Plaza, a housing project on the northeast corner of Central Park, when some friends suggested they move to the courts in the park. Along the way, their group met up with some other boys who lived in the Taft Houses, another project just north of Schomburg. Kevin estimated that 33 boys had been in the group that night, and he gave Hardigan a few names. Kevin was open with Hardigan about the attacks on the homeless man, the bikers, and the joggers. His account of events basically matched what police had heard from the victims, as well as Lamont McCall and Clarence Thomas. But when Hardigan asked Kevin to describe Trisha Miley's injuries, he was confused. There wasn't a lady jogger. The only woman Kevin had seen that night was the one on the tandem bike, Patricia Dean. It struck Hardigan as odd. Why would he admit so readily to the other assaults, but not the attack on the jogger? At the time, 
The police in general employed a litany of tactics to draw a confession from criminals. This may have included misleading a suspect about what the evidence suggested about their guilt, or exerting pressure on a suspect by withholding food, extending interrogations over several hours, or isolating them from contact with anyone else. These methods were commonly justified by the guiding principle that only someone guilty of a crime would confess to one, and an innocent person would never falsely incriminate themselves. Studies have since shown that this logic is oftentimes faulty, but at the time, this was the norm. 14-year-old Kevin Richardson had been arrested around 10.30 p.m. on the 19th. His mother had arrived at the precinct to claim him by 1.30 a.m. on the 20th, but the Central Park officers had been instructed to hold him. By 11.30 a.m. on the 20th, when Hardigan was about an hour and a half into his session with Kevin, his mother was exhausted. Kevin openly yawned. Hardigan tried to play that angle with Kevin. If he would just tell the truth about what happened with Trisha Miley, Kevin and his mother could go home. Hardigan could tell that Kevin was worried about his mom. She was in bad health and needed to lay down. Hardigan offered a deal. Kevin's mother could leave, and his 24-year-old sister, Angela, could act as his guardian instead during the interrogation. They agreed, and Hardigan and Kevin's mother left the room to fill out the appropriate paperwork. Kevin was left alone in the interrogation room with another officer. When Hardigan returned with Angela to continue his questions, he again instructed Kevin, tell me the truth so you can go home. Eventually, Kevin admitted to Hardigan that he had seen the female jogger in the park, and he'd been there when the group of boys attacked her. At 1 p.m., he signed a written confession attesting to such. He named several other boys as participants, including 14-year-old Raymond Santana, 17-year-old Michael Briscoe, 15-year-old Steve Lopez, and 15-year-old Antron McRae. He wrote, quote, I saw somebody holding her arms and legs. Raymond had her arms, and Steve had her legs, and Antron had sex with her. She was unconscious when they had her on the floor. Everybody left, and she was still there. The cops stopped five of us and arrested us, and I was the one that didn't rape her, end quote. Some of the details of Kevin's confession were wrong. He wrote that one of the boys had ripped her blouse and at another point described the tank top she was wearing. But Trisha was wearing a long-sleeved white cotton shirt, and even though Kevin denied assaulting her, placing himself at the scene of the crime was enough to charge him with acting in concert of rape. Hardigan had him transferred to another precinct for processing and moved on to his next interview. 14-year-old Raymond Santana had also been arrested at 10.30 p.m. the night before. Hardigan sat down with him around 1.40 p.m. on the 20th. Raymond's father had arrived at the precinct to claim him around 5 a.m., but had since been forced to leave for work. Instead, Raymond's grandmother sat with him during Hardigan's questions. However, she spoke limited English. Raymond's interview proceeded in a similar fashion as Kevin Richardson's. 
For the first several hours, he admitted to the other attacks in the park that night, but refused to offer any details about the sexual assault. He signed a statement at 4.40 p.m. to that fact. But an hour later, at 5.40 p.m., he signed a new statement with an addendum. After learning that Kevin Richardson had named him as one of the attackers, Raymond turned around and named Kevin, Steve Lopez, and Antron McRae as the perpetrators. Again, similar to Kevin, Raymond claimed he had only witnessed the attack, but hadn't taken part in it. He said, quote, I didn't have anything to do with the rape of that lady. All I did was touch her tits, end quote. Having now been named by both Raymond Santana and Kevin Richardson, police questioned 15-year-old Antron McRae about the attack. When he repeatedly denied any involvement in Trisha's assault, his mother, Linda, grew increasingly upset by the detective's continued questions. She started to cry and yell, insisting that Antron had told them everything he knew about what had happened in the park the night before. She didn't care what these other boys said. Detective Hardigan didn't want her emotions to scare Antron out of talking, so he suggested that Linda leave the room. He told her that Antron might be embarrassed to talk about what he'd seen in front of his mother. Linda agreed to leave, and Antron's stepfather, Bobby McRae, remained in the room. After a few more rounds of questions, one of the detectives pulled Bobby aside and showed him the statements of other boys in the park that named Antron as a participant. The detective advised Bobby to encourage his stepson to tell the truth. It would be worse for him if he's caught in a lie. An hour later, Antron too signed a written statement. He described the attack and implicated Kevin Richardson, Clarence Thomas, and Yusuf Salam. Just like Kevin and Raymond, he admitted to seeing it happen, but not participating, writing that he had held Trisha's arm while others jumped on. Some details of his statement were also inconsistent with the evidence. He described the attack as happening at the reservoir, but Trisha had been found by the lock almost half a mile away. He also incorrectly described what she'd been wearing. When police went to Schomburg Plaza on Friday morning, the 21st, to collect 15-year-old Youssef Salam for questioning, he was with a friend, 16-year-old Corey Wise. The officers asked Corey if he had been in the park the night before and if he'd seen anything. He said he had been in the park, but he'd left around 9.15 p.m. after some of the boys had thrown rocks at cars. A cab driver had been really upset with them, and Corey was afraid he'd call the cops, so he went home. However, when Corey mentioned the sexual assault unprompted, it caught the officer's attention. Did he know anything about that? Corey had heard about it from some people, mainly his girlfriend. The officer asked if Corey would also come down and make a statement about what he knew, adding that any information might help out his friend, Yusef. Corey agreed, and they all went to the precinct. Because Corey was 16, he wasn't legally required to have a guardian present during police questioning. However, he was not his own best advocate. Corey had a difficult childhood, 
in and out of foster care and had suffered hearing loss at an early age as a result of abuse. His hearing loss, a learning disability, and unstable upbringing resulted in a significantly stunted education. At 16, in the ninth grade, he had elementary-level reading skills. Detective Hartigan spoke with Corey for over two hours. He initially testified that he left the park after throwing rocks at cars, but had heard from Youssef that Kevin Richardson and Steve Lopez had attacked a female jogger. Then, half an hour later, he signed a new statement. He had seen the attack on Trisha, but he hadn't taken any part in it. Hardigan asked why none of the other boys had mentioned seeing him there. Corey said that he had hidden behind a tree. While Detective Hardigan spoke with Corey, homicide detective Thomas McKenna interviewed Yusuf Salam. When police first collected him from Schomburg, he had shown the officer a school ID that listed his birth year as 1973, making him 16. However, Yusuf had written the wrong year to make himself appear older to the girls in his school. As a result, an unaware McKenna began questioning 15-year-old Yusuf without a guardian present. So far, several of the other boys had named Yusuf as a perpetrator in the attack. In fact, a few of them had accused him of hitting Trisha in the face with a metal pipe, suggesting that was how her skull had been fractured. John Laughlin, who had intervened when the group of teens surrounded another jogger, described that he'd been hit with a pipe also. Police had so far been unable to locate the weapon, but hoped that when they did, they would be able to collect fingerprints and DNA evidence to confirm those statements. In the meantime, McKenna pressed Yusuf on his involvement in the attack, suggesting that he had been a ringleader of the group. Gerald Malone, one of the tandem bikers, had described how the tallest one seemed to have the energy of the group during their encounter. At six foot three, Yusuf fit this description. McKenna tried a fairly common tactic to elicit a confession. He told Yusuf that they had found fingerprints on the jogger's pants. Once they were able to match up whose fingerprints those were, someone was going to be charged. Even if Yusuf didn't say anything, the truth would come out. It was an innocuous bluff. Only someone who was worried that police would find their fingerprints would be compelled to confess to gain leniency ahead of the inevitable truth. An innocent person would know that the evidence would exonerate them and maintain their statement. However, sometimes the opposite is true. Knowing that there is evidence to clear their name, if a suspect is under a great deal of pressure during an interrogation, they may provide a false statement simply to find relief, knowing the evidence will eventually contradict it. Whatever the reasoning, Yusuf Salam did eventually tell McKenna that he had been present during the attack on Trisha Miley. Like the others, he denied any involvement in the sexual assault, claiming he was only a spectator. He named Corey Wise and Kevin Richardson as the attackers. He also placed the attack at the reservoir instead of the lock. However, before he could sign a written statement to this fact, Yusuf's mother arrived and interrupted the interview. 
She was outraged that the police had questioned her underage son without her. She wouldn't allow any further questions without a lawyer present. Then she collected Yusef and brought him home. McKenna was equally livid. Not only did the lack of a written statement make it harder to press charges against Yusef, but now his entire testimony may be invalidated in court. Police interrogated about a dozen of the teenagers from the park in the first 36 hours of the investigation. Of those, it was only Kevin, Raymond, Antron, and Corey that signed written confessions to being present during the sexual assault. Yusef didn't sign anything, but he had still given a verbal confession. Each one denied that they'd committed the attack, blaming each other instead. They also gave conflicting details on what Trisha had been wearing, who had participated, where the attack had happened, and even when it had happened. It was puzzling to Assistant DA Elizabeth Letterer, who had practically been working the case right alongside the homicide squad since arriving at the crime scene the previous morning. She had seen the trail in the grass from Trisha being dragged off the road. She had seen how much blood was still pooled on the wet ground even hours later. She was determined to punish those responsible. Letterer decided to conduct her own videotaped interviews with the boys, hoping she'd be able to sort out their inconsistencies. At the very least, she knew that a visual recording would be much more impactful when played than a written one. Even if their stories didn't line up, it would be hard to deny the words coming from their own mouths. Juries loved taped confessions. Coming up, the teenagers give their confessions for the camera and the public reacts to the progress of the investigation. Now back to the story. On Friday, April 21st, 1989, less than 48 hours after 28-year-old Trisha Miley was discovered in Central Park, police had four teenage suspects in custody who had confessed to being present for the violent assault. However, their statements were inconsistent. Assistant DA Elizabeth Letterer decided to interview each boy on camera, hoping to find clarity. As she sat with each of them, she first advised them of their Miranda rights. All of them waived their right to remain silent and their right to an attorney. She made sure that the cameraman turned to capture each of the boys' parents in the room, proving that the statements were being conducted with their consent. Except, of course, in the case of 16-year-old Corey Wise, who wasn't obligated to have a guardian present. Each of them told their story again. For the most part, it matched what had already been recorded in their written statements. Occasionally, more details were added, but it didn't afford Letterer any more understanding of what had definitively happened. Antron McRae stated that he got on top of the jogger, but he didn't actually penetrate her. He only wanted the other boys to think that he had participated. Letterer pressed him to elaborate. Had he taken his penis out of his pants? He said yes, but when asked if he'd put it between her legs or if he'd had an erection, he denied it. Raymond Santana incorrectly stated that the attack had happened at the reservoir. 
Letterer asked him if Trisha had been bleeding a lot, and he said no, though she had nearly bled to death in the woods. Kevin Richardson admitted to grabbing Trisha's arm, but said it was to help her to try to stop the attack. When Letterer tried to clarify who had tied her hands in front of her face, Kevin said that no one had done that, yet she'd been found bound and gagged by the arms of her long-sleeved t-shirt. Corey Wise stated that one of the other boys had cut Trisha's legs with a knife and someone else had masturbated and ejaculated on her, but police hadn't found any semen on her body and doctors didn't report any knife wounds on her legs. Later in the recording, Corey admitted for the first time to being present for the rape and not hiding behind a tree. He said he played with her legs while the other boys assaulted her. He continued, quote, So we were looking at her and I felt kind of bad and I kind of, this is my first extreme I did to any type of female in the street. This is my first rape. I never did this before and this is going to be my last time doing it, end quote. Even in the absence of any physical or forensic evidence to link any of the teenagers to the attack, when Elizabeth Letterer recounted the boys' statements for a grand jury, they deemed these confessions sufficient cause to move forward with indictments. On Friday, April 21, 1989, 15-year-old Antron McRae, 14-year-old Kevin Richardson, 14-year-old Raymond Santana, 15-year-old Yusuf Salam, 16-year-old Corey Wise, and 15-year-old Steve Lopez were formally charged with attempted murder, rape, sodomy, sexual abuse, robbery, assault, and riot. The majority of charges against Steve were eventually dropped, as he never confessed to any involvement in the attack, and there was no physical evidence to implicate him. He did plead guilty to the attack on John Laughlin, the ex-Marine, and was sentenced to 18 months. The rest of the group, now identified as the Central Park Five, awaited trial. In juvenile court, the maximum sentence allowed is three and one-third to 10 years, except in the cases of murder, arson, or kidnapping. However, the three and one-third years could be increased to five years if the teens were convicted of more than one felony. Therefore, Letterer included lesser felony charges to increase the odds that they would face serious consequences, even if a jury failed to find them guilty of the sexual assault. In addition, by adding the rioting charge, Letterer was able to call all of the people who had been attacked in the park that night rather than witnesses exclusively relating to Trisha Miley's assault. She would be able to paint the full picture of the night of April 19th for the jury, how it had escalated from robbery to rape. And if Trisha did succumb to her injuries, Letterer would happily tack on murder charges, which eliminated the mandated maximum punishment entirely. When Chief of Detectives Robert Colangelo held a press conference the day of the arrests, he laid out a detailed timeline of events, describing the movements of the group of teenagers around the park on Wednesday night and the different crimes they perpetrated along the way, ultimately culminating in sexual assault. 
Colangelo said, the attacks appeared unrelated to money, race, drugs, or alcohol. Instead, he related, the teenagers told investigators that the crime spree was a pastime called wilding. When asked to elaborate on the meaning, Colangelo admitted that he didn't know exactly, but thought it clearly implied they were going to go out and raise some hell. The definition and usage of wilding were widely speculated by journalists and talking heads across the city. It was an unknown term and, to some, an unthinkable one. Many New Yorkers already felt threatened by possible violence in their daily lives, but took precautions to prevent it, putting four and five locks on their doors and sticking to the streets they knew were safe. The idea that this horrific attack on an upstanding, well-educated white woman was perpetrated by a group of kids carrying out random acts of violence for fun was too senseless to bear. The meaninglessness of such brutality threatened any notion of perceived safety. The introduction of the term wilding also signaled a change in the way the group of teenagers were described by media. Headlines in all caps labeled them a wolf pack, violent and predatory. Daily articles outlined their night of savagery in the park. The events were printed as fact, referring to the boys as the rapists and the attackers rather than the alleged attackers. The city at large demanded that the boys be brought swiftly to justice, lock them up and throw away the key. While the majority of New York City newspapers had decided to withhold Trisha Miley's identity, referring to her only as the Central Park jogger, they printed the full names, ages, and addresses of the accused underage teenage boys. Adjectives used to describe them included bestial, monsters, animalistic, bloodthirsty, brutal, evil, and mutant. Some articles even hearkened to the full moon that had been out that night, as if its presence had awakened something primal in the young boys. They were not seen as children. They were not even seen as human. On May 1st, 1989, less than two weeks after the attack, and before police had even received the DNA results from Trisha's rape kit, a full-page ad ran in four major New York papers to comment on the case. In block letters, the ad commanded the city to bring back the death penalty, bring back the police. The ad copy lamented the deteriorating state of the city and blamed it on liberal policies that favored criminals over law-abiding citizens. It continued, I want to hate these muggers and murderers, they should be forced to suffer and, when they kill, they should be executed for their crimes. After this ad ran, more articles and opinion pieces piled onto the demand for capital punishment. A published letter to the editor suggested that if Trisha Miley had been armed, the whole situation would have been avoided. Another attested that bringing back the death penalty was the only way for New Yorkers to reclaim their city from the murderers and thugs. Mayor Ed Koch said of the crimes and the concept of wilding, I don't want to understand what motivates someone to engage in this kind of horror. 
I want him punished as an example to others. End quote. In the weeks leading up to the trial, Koch said, I think that everybody here will look at this case to see how the criminal justice system works. This will be the ultimate test of the system. The implication was clear from all sides. If the Central Park Five were not found guilty by the New York courts, it meant the system was irreparably broken and the city had no chance of recovery from the miasma of violence that had taken over. The future of New York, the future of decency, was on trial. Thanks for listening to Not Guilty. We'll be back Thursday with our next episode on the Central Park Five. First, we'll cover the criminal trial of Antron McRae, Youssef Salam, and Raymond Santana. Then we'll explore the criminal trial of Kevin Richardson and Corey Wise. We'll also talk about the DNA evidence that emerged in 2002 and how it affected the verdicts a decade after the fact. You can find more episodes of Not Guilty, as well as all of ParCast's other shows, on Spotify or your favorite podcast directory. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. In the meantime, based on the evidence presented, decide for yourself. Were the Central Park Five responsible for the attack on Trisha Miley? And will the jury agree with you? Find out next week. Not Guilty was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Andy Waits, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Liebeskind. Additional production assistance by Carly Madden and Maggie Admire. Not Guilty is written by Abigail Cannon. I'm Vanessa Richardson.